Good morning. Anyone in here have that like, it's getting close to Christmas flustered feeling? Is it just me? It's just me. Um, so before we uh, jump into the sermon, I want to point to some sheets of paper that are up on the wall over here. So this is something that may be new to most of the people in the room. So one of the things that we would like to do to launch into 2022 is to spend a week in 24-7 unbroken prayer for the first week of the year. And so what does this entail? You may have done some things like this before, but maybe not exactly like this. So we've got some sheets up on the wall that have the entire week broken out into one-hour increments. You may take more than one. Please take more than one. <laughs> um, so what you do is you go up on the wall and sign up. What you're signing up to do is to come in here to the building to pray. So we're in the process of setting up a prayer room. It's going to be in that room right behind those sign-up sheets. Um, and it is a room that we set up where it is all designed to help facilitate the prayer experience. So there'll be, like we did at East, uh, Good Friday, there'll be some prayer stations in there. There'll be prayer guides that break the hour up into like five-minute increments. There will be uh, books to read and art supplies. Some people love to go in and, and read scripture and then just try and paint and draw what God is putting on their heart. Um, and so it's a creative, interactive room that is designed to help educate us and, and, and push us further on in the prayer arena. And it's all going to be around what we're doing as a church and where we're going as a church. And it is a kid-friendly space. Every year when I do prayer rooms, uh, Ella is like, when can we go in? And I remember the very first time I took her in, I'm trying to think what age she would have been, four. Um, and she's like, I want to come to the prayer room with you. And I thought, you know what I'll do? I will go in for an hour. I'll have Monica go in for the hour after me or vice versa. And then I'll just, when she gets done, I can hand her off to Monica. Monica can take her home. We can do the shift around. So we go in the room and I sit down. And, and I'm explaining what all the things are in the room. And I was like, can, can I do this one? I'm like, sure. So who do you want to pray for? And so she's writing names of friends on something. And then she's like, am I allowed to play the guitar? And I'm like, sure. So she sits on this giant beanbag. She picks up the guitar and she just starts strumming. She can't play the guitar. And at that point, she couldn't sing in tune. And so she's just sitting there probably for 15 minutes, just, uh, I think it was reckless love, just going like this and singing reckless love over and over and over again. And, and so she just, she walked from, from place to place. Can I do this? Can you explain this to me? And next thing you know, uh, there's the, the doorbell in our old space. The doorbell went and I'm like, oh, someone's coming early. And I look at my phone and I'm like, dang, it's been an hour. And Ella was like halfway around the room and she's going, do we have to leave? Can we come back? Um, so it's a really fun space uh, for kids. It's really fun to come. Um, if there's people that you meet with and groups that you meet with, come and enjoy the room together. Um, and so we're going to try and fill as much of it up as we can with the people in this room. And then we've got a bunch of friends in the area who love this kind of thing. And so we are going to pray through the clock. We're going to have people sleeping here. We're going to have people praying all through the night, fasting, sleep, to be up through the night praying for the city. So we're going to launch 2022 right, because we have a dream for this church, right? We have a goal for where we want this church to go, and we know that nothing is going to get accomplished if it's not rooted in prayer. So we're going to take that week, we're going to go crazy, we're going to pray our hearts out, and then we're going to watch what God does this year in response to what happens in there. So the end of the service, go sign up on the sheets. We'll be sending out the online link so you can sign up online, uh, and let's devote the beginning of the year to constant intercession, asking God to move in our church and in our city and in this world, and He will. So... Hopefully that sounds fun. Uh, I, 
when I administrate prayer rooms, I, I'll just give another little story as a plug. One of my favorite things, so you have a prayer room and it's stocked up with art supplies, whatever. Every now and then you have to go in and tidy. We have tea and coffee in there, so you have to go make sure everything's topped up. So uh, in my last church, I, I would quite often, I'd be watching the clock. It's like, oh, it's right before the o'clock, so I can jump in, tidy up the room uh, as one person's leaving and the next person's coming in. And it was my favorite thing to do because what would happen, and it was usually the big burly men, right? They arrive and they're like, oh, I'm just here because my wife told me I had to. And so they've signed up and they're there and they're like, I'm not looking forward to this. And so they'd go into the room and then I would get the privilege of arriving right as they're walking out of the room. And I'd go, I'd knock on the door and I'm like, hey, it's the hour's up. Is it all right if I come in? They're like, it's not been an hour. And I'm like, no, it has. They're looking at their clock. How can it be an hour? How can it be an hour? I've been in here for an hour. I'm not even finished. And usually they pick up a sheet of paper and they're like, look at this. And it's like a little stick man, like this really pitiful drawing. And these big burly men are like, look at this. I was in there and I was praying. and I just had this thing and I was looking at all the art on the wall and I'm terrible at art. And I had this picture and I just start, like, started drawing it. And they're showing me this stick figure thing like Ella or Ewan, more like Sky. And, and they're just weeping. God said this to me. And I would always love it, these big burly men that would come out weeping because they'd encountered God. Um, and normally they, the, the expression is, why, why don't we just say, go at home, pray at home, we'll just pray around the clock. Why go in the room? Because this strange thing happens that even the least discerning people that I know uh, would be arriving at the prayer room or coming out of the prayer room and they're like, it's so weird. Like you walk in the room and it just feels different. What have you done in the room? We're like, nothing special. They're like, the room feels different. Like, it's easy to meet God here. I'm like, that's what happens when you take a space and you set it aside for prayer 24-7. You can walk into that room and sense that people have been in there praying. Uh, and it's easier to access God. So that's why we do it in a room. It's partly, it's educational. It's partly because what happens in a place when we devote ourselves to God and pray together. So there'll be a few more plugs coming out. Um, we'll share some stories. We'll, we'll uh, hoping to get it set up soon so you can actually go in and see what it looks like. But we'd love you to come and participate in that. Anyway, what we're really wanting to hear. Um, we're in this Advent series called Given, where we're looking at these four titles that Isaiah prophesies about who Jesus is. So we've covered two already. We're going to cover one more today. But before we go there, I want to start by looking and just reminding us of the Christmas story, right? We're two weeks, three weeks in, and we've not actually looked at the Christmas story. But as we look at this title, Everlasting Father, today, I want to remind ourselves of just this part of the story. Right at the beginning, Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18, says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he'd considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins.' 
Jesus means the one who saves or Yahweh saves. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, which they will call Emmanuel, El meaning God, so God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So it's an event that happened, uh, our calendar, if we remember this, our calendar changes around this event. We talk about BC, before Christ, AD, the year of the Lord, Anno Domini. And so this is the event that changes all of history. 700 years prior to this event is when we're in the verse that we're in, in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So today, we're going to look at what does it mean in this context that Jesus is the Everlasting Father. It's a little bit confusing. We've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Is Isaiah trying to tell us that Jesus, the Son, and God the Father are the same person? No, they sort of are, but they're not, right? We don't serve one God who reveals himself at three different points and three different people. We serve one God who exists as a community of three beings, Father, Son, and Spirit. So this is not Isaiah trying to tell us that Jesus the Son is God the Father, though we understand from what the rest of the Bible teaches about the Trinity that Jesus and the Father are two distinct people, but they are one. This is the core of our, our Christian belief. So we're going to look at what does this mean? What does it mean that he's the Father? For those of you who like your, your Hebrew and your Greek, aviad is the, the phrase that we're looking at today. So a Ab or Abi is, is the word for father, and then Ad is a word that, that comes up all the way through Scripture. It's got two different ways that it's used, but often meaning everlasting. We're going to look at that in, in, in more detail. But this is the title. They didn't call him everlasting father. They called him Avi Ad, and so that's who we're looking at today. In order to explain part of the significance of what it means that Jesus is the everlasting Father, we have to pause for a minute and remind ourselves of the bigger picture of Scripture and an aspect of what's going on in the biblical narrative that we often fail to think about. And it is, uh, we're going to look at everlasting Father, we're going to look at God as the Father, but before that, I want to take a moment and think about the enemy of our souls— uh, who has multiple names in Scripture, the adversary, the deceiver, uh, he's, the, he's Lucifer, he is Satan, um, and, and this character is significant because what happens, remember back at the beginning, God creates everything. He creates Adam and Eve, and he puts them in the garden to live in unbroken communion with God. Adam and Eve live there with God as their father, in more ways than one, he's the one that created them, so he's their father. He's the one that provides for them, so he's their father. He's in this intimate, caring relationship with them in the garden, and everything is going well. Life is good. They're fulfilled. Uh, Adam and Eve have unbroken union together. Uh, they have unbroken union with God. It's the way God intended it to be. Humanity with God their father living in unbroken union. But then we know how the story goes. The enemy of their soul comes into the picture and he deceives them. Did God really say, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And Adam and Eve, uh, they refused to hear the voice of God and instead they listened to the voice of the enemy. 
And what is it that the enemy does? He disconnects Adam and Eve from their father. He disconnects Adam and Eve from their father. So you had these children in the garden living in the identity as children of God, living in intimate union with their father. Satan comes in and pulls them away and chooses to rip these kids away from their father. What does that make Satan? A title that I read in a book several years ago that has stuck with me, Satan is the orphan maker. This is his job. This is his one goal in life is to take the people that God has made and rip them away from their father. Because he understands when we are secure in our identity with God, when we understand him as father and we come to him and are secure in that relationship, we do the things that God wants. We honor him, we pursue him, we hang on his every word. If he can get us away, he knows that if he can tear us away from the Father and let us live with an orphan spirit, we will chase all the things of the world to try and fulfill the longing that is left inside. Satan is the orphan maker. You've experienced this in, in your own life, I'm sure, in many ways. You know, when you say God is Father, when you say Jesus is the everlasting Father, this is the title he's given, we have some connotations that we bring to the language of Father. Now, some people in the room had a fantastic dad, and when you think of father, all you have is happy feelings. There are many people in this room, when you think of dad, he's not here anymore. So to think of father may have some happy memories, but brings a sense of loss, that he's no longer here to be with you. And as we walk into Christmas, you don't have that person here to celebrate this season with you. For some of you in the room, you had an unpleasant experience of your father. Uh, he was absent, he was abusive, uh, he spoke shame over your life, uh, he abandoned your family, he may have been present in the room physically but was absent emotionally. Uh, you may even remember some things that your father said to you that were negative. Oh, you idiot, you'll never amount to anything. Uh, who do you think you are? And you have these lies that since you were very young are playing over and over in your mind. And the difficult thing when it comes to trying to understand our relationship as children to God the Father is we as humans, you know Christianity is a very psychological religion. You, get, you know that? The word psychology, suke is the word for soul. The study of the soul. Christianity is, is all about our soul. Um, and the spiritual realm and what that looks like. So Christianity is always a very psychological uh, religion. Psychology, what's it do? It helps us understand what's going on inside of us. It helps us work out how we relate to one another, um, which is the realm of our spirituality. So one of the things that happens in our faith is we take whatever relationships we have on the earthly domain, and we are guilty of projecting those onto our understanding of who God is. So we have, uh, th there's a whole realm of, of psychology called attachment theory. And attachment theory says from a very young age, definitely by the time you're six years old, but it starts from the moment you're born, you attach to your primary caregivers. Humans were not put on this earth. You can't look at a baby and be like, hey, let me tell you the truth, now go do it. Right? I'll just tell you the right things, Okay. Actually, I need you to build a, a, a table today, so I'm just going to give you some power tools if you could just go do it, right? 
Kids don't grow just by being given information. Kids grow by being nurtured and by imitating what they see from their primary caregivers. The whole security that we experience in life comes from the way that we attach to our primary caregivers as we're young. So from a very young age, we are gazing into the eyes of our caregivers. Uh, We have needs that we can't express, so we cry. Our diaper needs change. Some of us still need that. Um, (laughs) But we cry, and, and, and as a child, we can't express what we need, so we cry, and our primary caregiver comes and responds to that need. And in those moments, we form an attachment to those people. This is someone who cares for me. How do I know? Because they respond to my needs. And what happens is by the time you are six years old, you have a filter. You could imagine it as a pair of glasses that you wear. You have a filter inside your psyche that uh, is built by your relationship to your primary caregivers that is the filter through which you will look at every relationship you encounter for the rest of your life. By six years old, you have a grid stuck inside of you that determines how you'll view every other relationship. So if you had caregivers who who looked after you and cared for you and responded to your needs, you will grow up feeling fairly secure in who you are with a belief that in general, the people around you are nice people and they will meet the needs that you have when they arise. Uh, Many people have that kind of experience, but quite often it's just a little bit more jaded than that. Why? Because you're, I'm I'm sorry to tell you this, your primary caregivers were broken. Shelby's like shocked. (laughs) Your primary caregivers are sinners, right? So it doesn't, doesn't matter how good their intent was. It doesn't matter how good, as a caregiver here, it doesn't matter how good your intent is. At the end of the day, your sin It will affect how you parent and how you relate to your kids, and it will start shaping how they view the relationships that they engage in the world. Some people, uh, your caregiver doesn't respond to you often enough, and so you you grow up with a kind of suspicion about people. People won't meet meet my needs. I can't trust people. Some people on the other side of it, your caregiver actually was damaging to you. And so you grow up with a grid that says, I need to be careful of people because people hurt me. Um, The challenge with that is it affects how we relate to everyone, but all of that also affects how we look at God. So this grid that is formed by six years old, when we look at God, our relationship to primary caregivers and other authority figures like teachers and, and aunts and uncles that are around at that time, that affects this grid. So we've got these glasses on and we look over at Kim and it's like based on how I was treated when I was young, I have a view of what Kim will be like to me. We wear those same glasses when we look at God and we say, who is this God that people are telling me about? Your upbringing, to some degree, either aids you in understanding what it means that God is Father, or it puts some obstacles in the way where you say, I can't trust that guy because I can't relate to him, Uh, or he hurt me, or he was like my my father was never present. My mother was not there. Like, I have this wound inside. I don't trust these figures that are out there. Part of the the interesting thing in all of this, right, when God created parenting, when he gave Adam and Eve their first child, God designed the way the world would function like this, that the job of parents is to point their child to God. That was Adam and Eve's job. 
Like, they, if they hadn't listened to Satan, they would have grown up in the Garden of Eden in unbroken communion with God. They would have had kids, and all they would have done was like, hey, kids, come meet God that's here walking in the garden with us. Let's see the awesome things that he did. But instead, they follow the enemy. They give in to him. They allow him to become the father for the moment. They listen to his voice over God's. They decide that he has their best at heart rather than God's. And then they raise these kids trying to point them toward God, but sometimes point them toward the orphan maker instead. Um, so Satan is at work uh, from before we are born in the lives of our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents trying to allow them to sin in a way that that sin is going to be passed down to you so that when you come to look at God, you can't see him for the brokenness that you're carrying. Uh, sounds a little bit hopeless, <laughs> but it's not because <laughs> we know how the story goes, right? So here we are, we're, we are stuck in this world uh, serving the orphan maker. His job, what he wants to do in your life is to separate you from the Father. He's been working from before you were born to create wounds in you that would give you skepticism toward this God. And then all through life, this is what he does. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So it makes you wonder, or is it any wonder that all the way through, the, especially the Old Testament, but also the New, is it any wonder that God repeatedly says, my heart is for the widow and the orphan. Why is his heart for the widow or the orphan? Because it's the people who the father has been taken out of the picture. They have no caregiver to look after them. The wife in that context, the husband was their means of survival. That, that was taken away. God's heart through scripture is always for the widow and the orphan. It's a reflection of his heart for us as people who have been stolen from him as we've been made orphans. And this whole Christian journey, or this whole life journey, let's go before the Christian part of it, this whole life journey is a journey of us trying to find our way back to our Father. It is us as orphans running around the world trying to find value and satisfaction in the things of the world to fill the void that we have. Uh, and it's a journey. The Christian journey is one of coming back to the Father and understanding the identity that we have in Him. Is it any wonder that one of the primary uh, metaphors in the New Testament for intimacy with God is what? He adopts us into his family. He takes the orphans who Satan has separated from the Father, he pursues us out of love and makes a legal covenant through the death and resurrection of Jesus that takes us from an orphan and rescues us and brings us solidly into the family of God. And the rest of the Christian journey is him trying to tell us, I love you, I've got you, I will provide for you, trust me. Romans 5.5 5 tells us God pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he gives us. He pours that love into us to transform us and to help us fix our eyes on him. The trouble is we live somewhere in between the two because we live in a fallen state, right? If you know Jesus, you know Jesus and you have been adopted into God's family. That's that moment where, whether young or old, you said, Jesus, I want to surrender the entirety of my life to you because my whole life I've been chasing the empty things of the world and it doesn't satisfy me. I want you to be Lord of my life. So I'm going to surrender everything I am and everything I have and I want you to father me. 
And so I accept you as my Father, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord, and I give my life to you. That moment happens. Uh, and from there, God is constantly working in us to solidify that adoption in us. But we're still broken, right? We know Jesus, we're in love with him, we're walking with him, so we're broken. So what does it look like? When we are in the world and we're walking as, uh, as sons of God, as we're walking secure in the identity that he's given us, it looks like this. I feel no shame because this God who loves me, loves me. And it doesn't matter what I've done, he's paid the price for that. What's it look like? Oh my goodness, I want time with my father today, so I'm gonna run over here and grab his word because I'm desperate to hear his voice. It means I'm gonna stop right now in the middle of what I'm doing. I'm, I'm listening to a song. This music is beautiful. God, I just wanna enjoy it with you. Thank you, Father, for being here. So we hunger for that. But then we have these other moments, and you know what it's like. When someone walks in the room that you don't like, and you see them walk in the room, and you make this decision inside to stonewall them. I'm not gonna talk to them. I'm not gonna look at them. They just cracked a joke that everyone else is funny and I will not laugh. <laughs> I'm just, I'm not angry. I'm just gonna hold it all inside and I'm just gonna be really short with them. Why do we do it? Because we're walking in an orphan spirit. And what do orphans have to do? They have to take care of themselves. They have to provide for themselves. They have to look out for themselves. That person did something that hurt me. So the best way that I can stop them from hurting me again is I'm just gonna stay away from them. I'm gonna stonewall them and I'm gonna make them hurt as much as they hurt me. They just don't know it because I'm passive aggressive, right? <laughs> and then I get annoyed that they don't know it and they keep doing what they're doing, but I never open my mouth to tell them and resolve the issue. We see it in the way we chase after things in the world. It's that career that we're longing for. If I can just get the next step up, I will have enough money to care for myself. I'll have enough love from the people around about me. I will have enough respect in the world. Why do we do it? Because we're not secure in the love that he's given us. And so we, as orphans, are trying to make our way there ourselves. There are so many things that we do. It's, it's in the relationships that we pursue, the lusts that we give into, the materialism that we chase. It's in the self-loathing that we give toward ourselves, where we go, that, that caregiver didn't care for me. Why should, I'm, I'm worthless. And you know, as we as parents fail to love our kids, as we allow our sin to get in the way of the way we're parenting, that's the perfect opportunity for the enemy to come in and go, look, she doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. You're worthless. And he just whispers those lies into her heart. And what happens? Oh, I'm worthless. No one cares about me. That guy does. That girl does. If I can just get sexually intimate with them, it'll all be put right. And then you go have a one-night stand, and the person leaves in the morning, and you're left feeling just as rejected and worthless as you were the night before. Satan is a master of orphan-making. We live in a city surrounded by people with orphan spirits who have been separated from their father, who are clawing at the world to try and find love and value and meaning. And we, as believers, have been reunited with the father. We've been adopted into his family. And we have the ability to go to them and show them the father that they're longing for. We have the ability. This is an amazing thing about how God has set up the church. 
You have these attachment filters that are broken, the grid that you're looking at relationships with. Isn't it interesting that the church is a family all through scripture of people called to love one another, carry one another's burdens, provide for one another, share with one another, build one another up, speak with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, correct the brokenness gently and alongside them. Why? Because God has gifted us with the ability to come alongside one another and heal the broken lenses that we use to look at the world. Again, we're, we struggle as the church. Why? Because we, we, we reduce our spirituality to go to church, read your Bible, worship, pray, give, and that's all it's about. And so we do those things with the belief that God is up there ready to judge us, that he's keeping record of what we do right and what we do wrong. We're taking the way our parents parented us and we're projecting them onto God and using that as the, the way to value or, or estimate how he views us in the moment based on the things that we do. Um, so we end up in this broken place where we are adopted as his children, but we don't understand the identity that we have. And most of us live in the church as orphans. We've lost sight of the unconditional love that he has for us, and so we try and find it elsewhere. We've lost sight of the fact he provides for us, and so we try and provide for ourselves. We've lost sight of, of his ability to overcome the obstacles in front of us, so we take on ourselves to do it, and then we get mad at him when it doesn't work out the way it was, we imagined it would. Uh, we live in the church as orphans, and it's not the way he intends us to live. So when Isaiah is looking at Jesus and using this phrase, everlasting Father. There are lots of pieces going on in here, but it's a foreshadowing of the unique relationship that Jesus was going to reveal to us. Um, let me look at a couple of scriptures here uh, to, to pull this together. Matthew chapter 6. We know this very well. This then Disciples go to Jesus, teach us to pray. This then is how you should pray. What does Jesus reveal? This is how you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth the way it is in heaven. Give us today the things that we need. Forgive us our debts and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Did you notice the prerequisite in this prayer to getting the things that you're asking for? is understanding that God is your father. It's been brought out of the orphan mentality back to the father who loves you and wants to pour out blessing on you. And then what are the requests? God, your kingdom is amazing. May the things that you do, I have watched what you do and it is good. May the things that you do happen here on earth round about me because I trust you. Would you give me the things that I need? My daily bread, you're the provider. That's who you are as father. Would you forgive me for the things that I do wrong? Bad parenting holds wrongdoing against their children. Good parenting says, yes, you've done wrong. I forgive you and I love you anyway. We do these things with the kids. I, I noticed when they were really young, um, and I'd been in this class talking about some of this stuff. And I was like, I don't want my kids to grow up thinking that because I hold, give them strong consequences that God's gonna smite them down. Um, so, so, I, I, someone had asked, like, how do you feel when you do something wrong? Think of this in your spirituality. You've just looked at pornography, and you know you shouldn't have. You've just stonewalled someone, and you know you shouldn't have. You've just, uh, 
<clears throat> had a conversation with someone that you know you shouldn't be have. You've just been caught gossiping. Like in that moment, right after it happens, what is your inner response? Is it, my goodness, Jesus, you're so amazing and I love you. Thank you that you love me. Or is it, oh, God, I promise I'll never ever do it again. Please don't give me the consequences. Please don't let it get found out. Please don't. What's your response after sin? Because one of them is the heart of the orphan. And one of them is the heart of the child. And, and so we would, with our kids, I, I remember one day I, I told Ella off for something. And I was like, Ella, does daddy love you when you do things wrong? And she went, no. And I was like, oh, that is so wrong. I was like, I don't like it when you do things wrong, but I still love you. And from that moment on, every time one of the kids did something wrong, if you, we, you, you can ask them. Go ask Ella or Ewan, does your daddy love you when you do something wrong? They now go, yes. But we had, to, we had to train them. Yes. Like, Ella, does daddy love you when you do that? No. No, the answer is yes. I want you to say yes. Ella, does daddy love you when you do something wrong? No. No, yes. I love you even when you do something wrong. There's still consequence, but I love you. Ella, does daddy love you when you do something wrong? Yes. Like we're getting somewhere. Ella, does daddy love you when you do something wrong? Yes, he does. He loves me when I do something wrong. This is the father that we're worshiping. He forgives us our debts as we've forgiven others. And he doesn't lead us into temptation. He's not up there going, let me lead you into a whole bunch of issues and, and, and test you out and see if you can survive this one. It's not his heart. He's the one who delivers us from evil. But all of these things, the prerequisite is the fatherhood of God. Have you gone from orphan spirit back into adoption with the Father? Another scripture, John 8, Jesus says to the people, if God were your father, you would love me. This is him talking to Pharisees. You would love me for I've come, come here from God. I've not come of my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out the father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus understands that there are two options for father. There's only two. There's God the father whose heart for you is good, and when you walk with him, you start doing the things that he wants you to do. Or there is the father of lies who takes great delight in whispering lies into your life to convince you to follow him. Every time you speak a lie, you're declaring that the father of lies is your father. Every time you think murderously towards someone, you're declaring that the father of lies is your father. And you know how we are. We're pretty fickle as humans, right? Sometimes we see God as our father and half the time we're in the church claiming to be his and we're living like the father of lies is the one who has our affection. Matthew 11, all things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. This declaration everlasting father is not a statement that Jesus is the father. Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to us. We can look at Jesus and see the heart of the Father. And so many people, I hear it in the church all the time. The God of the Old Testament is the mean, angry, vengeful God. And then Jesus comes and shows us the other side of God, which is this nice, kind, loving God. Jesus shows the heart of the Father. 
The love and compassion that we see in Christ that loves the unlovely and touches the untouchable, challenges the religious establishment, that loving God is the God of the Old Testament. That is the heart of the Father. You want to know the Father, you fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the reflection of the Father. He is the everlasting Father. There's a little more to it than this. There's a bunch of ways that father is used in scripture and the biblical definition of father we tend to use the word father here and we think of like your physiological biological or adopted parent right that's the way we think of father we have other language here that we use the founding fathers so we start thinking of george washington the founding father of america um the the bible has lots of breadth to the way they view father similar to this so you've got Verses like in the beginning of Genesis, it says, Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of all those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah had a son, Tubal-Cain. He forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. So they have this way that it's used in their language that it's more than just a physiological father, but the founder or source or author of a whole grouping of things. Um, it means protector. Uh, I, I mean, I already mentioned this. This is Psalm 68. God is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. In God is his holy dwelling. So God is, he's the progenitor, the founder. He's the protector as father. He's the provider. Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? God is provider. He's the originator of all things. In some sense, is the creator. Job 38 says, does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? Where does it come from? Where's its source? Fathers in Scripture are teachers who guide us in the right way. Ephesians 6, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There are people in this room who are really good at provoking their children to anger. That goes completely against the spirit of Scripture. If you regularly are in conversations with your kids, now, okay, kids are broken, and depending on the age, they can be extremely rebellious, but if your kid's primary response when they're around you is provoked to anger, you have a problem that you have to deal with. You're living with an orphan spirit, and you've got to learn to reconnect with the Father who loves you. So fathers are teachers. They're filled with compassion. Luke 15, the prodigal son is what we call it, right? It's the wrong title. The title is the prodigal father, right? Who's the one that gives lavishly? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son who had wished his father dead, who had stolen his inheritance and run off, what did, he, what did the father do? He put a robe on him, signifying his rule in the house. He put the signet ring on his finger to symbolize his inheritance. He put shoes on his feet. He said, you're part of this family, and you get to rule with me. It's compassion. It's intimacy. It's co-heir. John 16, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me, Jesus speaking, and I've believed that I came from God. It's intimacy, it's compassion, it's teaching, it's, it's the source, it's the provider, the protector, the founder. 
This is what scripture thinks of when it uses the word father. So when it's saying Jesus is the everlasting father, he's pointing ahead to who God is and all of his provision and all of his grace and his sacrifice and his forgiveness and his mercy. But he's not just father, he's everlasting father. And why does that matter? Why does it matter? Remember the context of Isaiah. Israel is hungering for the Messiah who will come and lead their people out of slavery, out of oppression, and back to being the world's superpower. They're longing for this. This prophecy is not to them. It's not a prophecy about the future salvation that we have in Jesus. For them, it's, it's a political person that's going to come. Why does it matter that he's the Father and the everlasting Father? Let's look at a promise in Second Chronicles. This is part of the Davidic covenant. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, the word is avi, father, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. So one is coming, his kingdom is going to be established. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne, ad olam, is the phrase for forever. Ad, the word that we use for everlasting. I will establish this throne everlasting. I will be his father. He will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor, talking about Saul. I will set him over my house and my kingdom, Ad Olam. His throne will be established, Ad Olam. So this promise that they're longing for is that a king is gonna come, a ruler for their people who will rule forever. Why does it matter that Jesus is the everlasting father? Last two scriptures as we wrap up. 1 Kings 15.3 and 1 Kings 15.11. I could have taken you anywhere in Scripture for this. Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles is just list after list of the kings of Israel and where they ruled and how they did. And some of the, it's, it's a frustrating chunk of Scripture to read because it's like they did really well, they followed God, and then he died and his son came up and led them all astray, and he did evil, and this one did evil, and then someone was born and he was raised right, and he walked with God and leads Israel to follow God, and then all of a sudden someone is, is leading them astray again. It's just like they're good, they're evil, they're evil, evil. There's a good one, they're evil, they're evil, they're good. And then it gets to the end, it's just evil, 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 evil. And in the scriptural narrative, when the leader walks with God, the people would go in the will of God. When the leader walked away from God, the people were led away from God. And, and, and look at the language that's used. This, these lines are repeated in every instance where they're talking about one of these rulers. So this is an example. Abijah committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to his God as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. Versus the next king, Asa, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. Why does it matter that Jesus is everlasting father? For Israel, their success as a nation depended on whether or not the father would walk with the Lord or not. They were looking for a ruler who would come and be the line of David who would last forever. That Jesus is the everlasting Father means he's the king that's seated on the throne. You don't have to worry if his son is going to do a good job or not. You don't have to worry if the predecessor is going to walk with God and lead us to him or lead us away. We don't have to worry as his children that he might die one day and we're going to have to take the throne. Heaven forbid that one of us <laughs> had, to, had to rule God's kingdom. 
So everlasting father is this statement. It's Jesus reflecting the father and all the attributes that that is, but it's more of a promise about what it means that the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled, that this person will sit in the throne who has the best of God's people in mind, that, that he is never gonna disappear. He's gonna be there permanently and we can be sure that he walks in the footsteps of his father and will always lead us there. And so then it brings us to today. We have an everlasting Father. We have the Father everlasting. We have Jesus who reflects the everlasting Father to us. He will stay on the throne forever. We are promised that one day we are going to reign with him. And we're going to help govern this world free from sin. And there's a day coming when there will be no more orphan spirit present in your heart where there will be nothing that the enemy can do to tempt you because he'll be destroyed, where sin will be gone and you will understand fully the intimacy that you have with your father that changes everything. So there's an invitation today. Are you gonna walk in the orphan spirit or are you gonna stand secure in the adoption as God's child? If you're already walking with God, you have a decision to make that is that same one, right? Am I gonna give in to the orphan spirit and allow those things to dictate my life? Or am I gonna uh, change my habits and patterns that everything about my life would be done in intimacy with the Father? And then if you're here and Jesus isn't your savior, then there's a question for you. Are you gonna live your life with an orphan spirit, allowing the orphan maker to steal you away from the very thing that will give you what you're longing for? Or will you accept the sacrifice that Jesus made and say, God, I, I want to be adopted into your family. Help me to love you and to know you and heal what you're doing in me. We worship Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, and the everlasting Father. Let me pray. Father, we need your help. <laughs> We need your help. Lord, the enemy's done a great job of blinding us to you. He's done a great job of stealing our hearts away from you. He does a great job daily of poking at us and hurting us. Uh, God, would you help us to fix our eyes on you? Would you help us to know the identity that we have in you? God, would you use us as a church to heal the broken attachments that we have that we can walk secure with you and with one another? And then would you make us a hospital for Hillsborough, that people would come in here broken, orphaned, and cut off from you, and they would find family, they would find fulfillment, and they would find a deep love that they never knew was possible. So, God, we need you, and we delight in you. Would you come and move in us in Jesus' name? Amen.